Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is also available at airlinesconfidential.com. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net. He's an ultra-high quality guy in an ultra-low-cost world. It's former Spirit Airlines CEO Ben Baldanza, who now teaches about how airlines work. (laughs) That's so nice. Well, if you're ever stuck on a long delay at any airport in the world... It'd be a good thing to know Seth Kaplan, NPR's here now transportation analyst, because he knows what to do to make any hour fun in an airport. So kind. We're so nice to each other in the intros, Ben. We'll have to we'll have to make up for it during the rest of the show, right? Pushing back from the gate. This is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about a U.S. airline going out of business slowly but surely. We'll discuss the latest as coronavirus itself and the panic surrounding it spreads. Then it's passengers behaving badly and finer wine. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. A sizable U.S. passenger airline is going out of business. Now, there's a caveat here. This is not an airline brand most travelers know, not an airline you can buy tickets from. But Trans States Airlines, a lot of people who work in the industry knows it, uh, no, it, it does have 45 airplanes. Uh, these days they're flying under United's flag. Now, these are 50-seat Embraer 145s. Uh, the airline isn't suddenly shutting its doors and leaving United or its passengers out in the cold. It, it's going to do what it calls a, quote, organized and well-planned wind-down of the trans-states operation. Uh, the airline will be gone by about the end of this year. The problem is... It hasn't been able to find enough captains to fly its planes. Ben, this can't be great news for cities and passengers who rely on smaller jets like those 50-seaters that Transstates flies. Well, that's right, Seth. And this has been a problem that has been around the regional airline industry in the United States for a while. You may remember a while back, a few years ago, Republic Airlines filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And their primary reason was they said they couldn't get enough pilots and therefore couldn't meet the demands for all the flying that they had. And it's been an issue really since for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, until the most recent years, our military had been getting smaller and smaller, so producing fewer and fewer pilots. Also, the laws changed. We talked about this a couple of podcasts ago, but now it takes more hours of flying small planes, basically, before you can get hired by an airline like Transstates. And way and that, more, and, and to be clear, way more hours. I mean, yeah. it, used be, it used to be 250 hours. Now it is 1,500 hours. So you've got to be up there flying for years doing something else before you could be hired by, by an airline, even a small one, a, a regional carrier. That's right. And then add all that to the fact that, you know, more than five years ago, the retirement age of pilots was raised from 60 to 65. And so for five years, no pilots retired that would have retired, or I shouldn't say no, but almost no retired that could have. So that sort of put things off. So fewer pilots retiring, that's back to normal now, now that everybody's retiring at 65, but they're flying five years longer than they used to. 
because pilots used to have to retire at 60. It takes a lot more hours before you can be hired by one of these small guys. And, you know, a lot of the hubs that relied on these kind of planes have closed or gotten really small. So most of this feed now goes into one of the major hubs in the U.S., like Chicago or Atlanta or Dallas anyway. Um, I, I can it, remember, for example, I, I remember you know landing at Cleveland in it must have been like 2001, and and looking in almost every plane was one of these Embraer Air 145s. You know, there'd be like a, a, a seven, you know, it was Continental back then, which later became part of United, but there'd be you know a 737 here and there, but it was just 50 seater after 50 seater. Uh, Cleveland's gone as a hub for United. Uh, just as Memphis is gone as a hub, just as Cincinnati is mostly gone, Pittsburgh's gone, and, and those are the hubs that you're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly right. And a funny thing, since you mentioned Cleveland, on Wikipedia, there's a funny little stat about Cleveland Airport that says it's the only airport in the United States to be de-hubbed twice by the same airline. And that's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, because oh, because because oh, because United way back had a had a hub, and then it inherited the Continental Hub, and yeah, no, exactly. and then closed it again after they, they merged. That. That's right. Yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah, so no, that that too uh, obviously a, a a factor there. Uh, Transstate said that it you know it had enough first officers, but it didn't have enough captains. So what that suggests, and in fact, it said it had to get rid of a, it had an incoming class of more first, first officers, but it canceled it. I mean, people who thought they had jobs then didn't because there weren't enough captains. So clearly what's happening is, is uh, you know, you could still sort of get those entry level pilots who just need their first job. But once somebody has enough experience that they could be a captain with trans states, they don't need to be a captain with trans states because maybe they can get hired by, you know, maybe they're not going to be, uh, of course, be a captain for Delta or American or United or anything like that, but they can get a job now either as a, a, a first officer with one of the larger carriers or, or, you know, get paid more to be a captain maybe at another regional. That's exactly right. The reason most pilots fly at these regionals is to someday go work for the bigger airline that usually brands the regional carriers, you know, like a Delta and American or United or something, or go to a Southwest or a JetBlue or another, sure. you know, larger airline. Um, there are certainly some guys who are women who for careers have stayed at the regionals, but most of them use that as a stepping stone. So you're right. When there's fewer pilots to go around and there's generally well-accepted sort of a pilot shortage in the U.S., they go for the best jobs and the best, not only the best, the job that's going to pay them best for the next 12 months, but the job that's going to give them the best career progression. And you go work for a big airline, you can fly big airplanes, maybe fly bigger airplanes. And the longer you work there, the more control you have over your quality of life and things like that. And that's just a better lifestyle than flying for a regional where you're going up and down a lot in, in busy airspace, but you're not doing any of those real long trips which uh which make for a lot of time yeah uh interesting because we think of it in terms of uh, european airlines especially going out of business in recent years a lot of high profile ones you know, whether, whether it's wow air thomas cooking those we think god it's been so long since a u.s airline has gone out of business and again in terms of a branded u.s airline uh that, that everybody recognizes that's true but here we do have uh, a, a sizable U.S. airline operation now uh, pre preparing to to shut its doors, and we'll, we'll have to see how this all shakes out. But clearly, the the trend of upgaging, as it's called, of just larger average airplanes 
continues you know what, what used to be flown by a 50 seater now more commonly would be a 76 seater what used to be served with a 76 seater now commonly with a mainline aircraft of, of more than 100 seats fewer frequencies in some markets with bigger planes and other markets if they can't fill a big enough plane are are uh, are, are vulnerable to to losing service well, and you can also blame carriers like uh, Spirit and Frontier for a little bit of that because as fares have come down in the U.S. because of these ultra-low-cost carriers, airlines have realized that flying bigger average airplanes produces lower average cost per seat. A 100-seat plane per seat is cheaper to fly than a 50-seat airplane. And so that upgaging, the word you use, which is the word the industry uses, of course, um, is is happening all around the world. The A319s are becoming 320s, 320s are becoming 321s, 737s are getting bigger, and even you see some you know, dual-aisle or wide-body airplanes, de- wide airplanes deployed on sort of shorter segments around the world. And when Transstate says it can't get enough captains, of course, that doesn't mean it couldn't get enough captains at some amount of money. The problem is that it can't get enough captains flying, willing to fly for the, the salaries that it's willing to, to pay to carry just 50 passengers. And then that gets into the economics of what you were talking about. We're a bigger jet. You still have just two passengers for, uh, for a short flight, but you get to spread those costs among many more passengers. So even if the pilots get paid a little more to fly the bigger jet, uh, than the smaller jet overall, the costs, and that's true of a lot of costs of operating a flight. Uh, you know, there are costs that are related to how many passengers are that are on board, but but some costs just have to do with the flight, whether you're carrying 50 passengers and 150 passengers, and, and ultimately it's it's more economical uh, generally to carry 150 passengers or at least 100 passengers. Well, meanwhile, the coronavirus, Ben, continues to spread and so do fears of where all this is heading total cases in china are are approaching a hundred thousand deaths they're approaching three thousand now nearly a thousand cases in south korea hundreds in italy and of course with the lag time between contraction of the disease and then diagnosis and then the reports getting out who knows what else has happened that we don't yet know about uh, we do know someone with, with coronavirus used the montreal to vancouver air canada flight uh, to travel between iran and canada 94 people who attended a conference in singapore traveled to various countries around the world and infected other people Ben Ayata, the Airline Trade Association, as you know, estimated the damage to the airline industry uh, could approach $30 billion if coronavirus follows a trajectory similar to SARS back in 2003. Uh, that accounts for the more globalized economy now, but assumes the disease itself has roughly similar consequences. The reason financial markets around the world are reeling is because we don't really know what to assume at this point. So, Ben, can you help us separate the panic and the noise from the, the the key details and the legitimate fears here? When you read stories, Ben, about coronavirus and the travel industry, what are you paying attention to in, in terms of gauging how bad this really is with the World Health Organization now saying coronavirus has the potential to become a pandemic but is not yet one? Well, like most people, Seth, I rely on things like the CDC and other people who um, – you know, are paid to know what they know to help figure out these things. And, you know, the markets are reeling in part because, you know, the one thing the market hates more than anything is uncertainty of of any type. And the coronavirus certainly is putting a lot of uncertainty on things. IATA's estimate 
which who knows if that's high or not, or if that's maybe low, we'll have to see. But what's true about that number, it is, is that it is disproportionately focused on long haul flying and more flying in and out of Asia. Oh yeah. Than, the, the vast, anywhere else. Right. We should be clear about that. The vast majority of that 30 billion. I mean, a lot of it is domestic China and, and, and most of the rest is flying to or from China and some flying within East Asia for now as of now that's what that assumes uh catastrophic for certain airlines not for all airlines around the world yeah that's right and and even for those for whom the coronavirus itself is not uh, a problem yet or maybe not won't be but isn't now it could end up being an indirect problem because for example say you're say you're a big airline that flies to china and all of a sudden you're not flying a lot of your big planes to china until you know what's happening here well you're not going to just sit those very expensive planes down what you're going to do is you're going to fly them in other places and that and that plane probably has a lot more seats than the airline was flying before on that market where they deploy it. And that means prices are going to be depressed. So there's going to be pricing effects for customers in all markets because of redeployment of planes due to the coronavirus. Yeah. No, this is, uh, as you said, it's it's the uncertainty. Uh, you know, and SARS felt this way at times. H1N1 felt this way at times. Uh, the The the, the bird flu, you know, the late 90s, there was there was a, a health scare. So, you know, we felt this way before and it's easy later to look back and say, well, you know, in, in the end, it, it was it was the fears were overblown. And uh, and anybody from an investment standpoint who got in <laughs> when fears were at their peak, uh, it, you know, ultimately did well. But but the but yeah, the, the problem is we, we 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 don't know how this ends. And, uh, and 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 people point out, look, the difference now, and this this is clear, is that this, the world is more interconnected now than it used to be. China is a more important market now uh, than it used to be, and, and and people are just all traveling around more uh, than they than they used to. And so uh, certainly, we're all counting on health officials, as you said, the CDC in the U.S. and its its counterparts around the world. To, I also uh, think so. Yeah, and I also think that the cruise industry is bigger than it's ever been before. Yeah. And and cruise ships have been sort of the epicenter of a lot of the panic, at least. Maybe not the actual disease, but the concern of sort of being trapped, if you will, on this, you know, barge basically, right in the middle yeah. of somewhere and 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 fears of, you know, a port not taking the ship. You saw that one that floated around Asia yeah, for a while to Cambodia let them embark and things. And so I think there's probably lots of fear affecting the cruise business right now, which affects indirectly some airlines who feed cruise ports and things. Definitely. Well, Ben, now it's time for Passengers Behaving Badly, uh, the segment of the show. Ben, this one really isn't funny. Uh, some, some really bad behavior here that could have killed an innocent animal. Security agents who were x-raying check bags at the airport in Erie, Pennsylvania, noticed something strange inside one bag. Uh, thankfully, they opened the bag and they found a live six-month-old kitten inside without any food, water, or of course, air for that matter. Uh, police cited a couple. They were both 21 years old for animal cruelty. They were apparently planning to take the kitten all the way to Tampa. Couples for a place called Northport, Florida, not far from uh, Sarasota. I guess whoever wants to make their usual jokes about people from Florida can do that at uh, <laughs> this point. Uh, all of that according to the Erie Times News. Now, officials uh, gave the kitten to the Humane Society. Let's hope they found her a better home than that one. Ben, 
thank goodness those agents made the discovery hard to imagine what those people were thinking. Well, let's hope that this isn't a bad consequence of tighter rules on emotional support animals, <laughs> right? <laughs> that if, you, if you can't get your pet on free for that, you're going to put them in your baggage. I mean, that's just absolutely amazing. Um, the, the number in this story that, that sort of struck out at me is they're both 21 years old. And that just says to me, they just weren't thinking about, you know, what they were going to do to that animal and what the, the temperatures that animal might have been subjected to if it were checked on the airplane and um you know the likelihood of it surviving you know wasn't even certain and they didn't even think about that they just thought i've got this kitten i probably don't want to pay to take it on board so i'm going to put it in my bag it's really silly amazing yeah i know you're uh, you're the the father of of uh, of a dog uh we have cats over here and just when i read stuff like that i'm just you know and, and we've talked about it before on the show i mean we you know I transported our cats when we moved and it, it, we paid $300, you know, uh, to, to, to get them on board the plane. And, and, you know, nobody wants to spend that, but, uh, but, but gosh, when you think about, uh, all the crazy things, a lot of people do because of their pets, I mean, I'm using that word crazy loosely. Cause I mean, I do it too, right? <laughs> I love our animals. Um, and usually it's, usually it's, it's going overboard, uh, for the, for the, for the benefit, uh, of the animal. So yeah, pretty hard to, to relate. To, uh, to to what those people did. Uh, well, Ben, uh, I, I want to talk quickly before we go to break about the International Aviation Forecast Summit. Uh, this is one of my favorite events, if not my favorite event of all uh, of, of the year. I know you feel the same way, too. You've spoken there uh, many years. It's going to be in Cincinnati this year, and you and I are both going to be there. And, uh, you know, we're really excited to to. to partner with the the IAFS as, as the as the acronym goes um it, it really in, in terms of getting just everybody in the room uh, all the aviation leaders and really having access uh, to to them I mean anybody who's listening who wants to who wants to have a conversation with Ben or or with uh, the various people leading airlines today it's it, it's 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 they're not just there but it's it's just it's approachable it's accessible and a uh, and, and a really great opportunity to uh to be there i know you've said to me ben that that's i mean you get and you get invited to speak at all kinds of conferences and you don't always get a chance to go to all of them this is one that you uh that that you always make sure to go to if you can well it's a great conference a lot of people attend and it's a great networking event but it's also you know it's it's real decision makers in the airline industry they do it around they don't always do it in cincinnati sometimes it's more fun if it's in vegas although that maybe we'll have fun in cincinnati too we'll see <laughs> i'm actually looking forward to uh to to go into cincinnati i've i've, I've uh you know what? I have to check the calendar to see if the Reds are in town there. The one time I was in Cincinnati, I saw a Reds game at that uh, at that great ballpark there, and uh, that, that's always for me. I, I look for when I'm going somewhere in the summer, I look for an opportunity to uh, to see a uh, a baseball game. But if, if you're interested, uh, hop on the airline's confidential website. You'll see a banner for the conference, and the promo code is AC sixteen ninety five AC like airlines confidential. One six nine five a six one six nine five will get you a uh, a discount discounted rate below the uh, the lowest the, even the 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 early booking rate that they're offering right now uh, to everybody else. It's the International Aviation Forecast Summit. Well, now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, how do short haul aircraft fly really long distances? And then a complaint during finer wine. More Airlines Confidential is next. 
Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, let's take a question. Morgan from Chicago writes, Hey, Ben and Seth, I am a flight attendant for a well-loved airline. And Morgan spells that L-U-V, which is the the ticker symbol for for Southwest Airlines. Well-loved airline with a unique fleet. I have a question about fleets, more specifically where they come from. I usually track miles flown, but for 2020, I decided to track the tail numbers I've worked uh, worked on to do something a little different. Having to do the absolute most, I made a massive spreadsheet. Morgan's great. Massive spreadsheet database of every aircraft in our fleet with notes about special liveries, and when and where Boeing first delivered the airplane. We have a ton of old and trustworthy birds with interesting past lives. And several several of our planes were first delivered to Australian carriers. I knew from the start uh, we had a lot of planes from South America and Asia, but Australia really got me curious. After some personal investigative work, this is great, these Aussie-born aircraft worked uh, for a handful of Australian carriers, and they moved to Argentina. And then finally, they were purchased by us uh, to live out their golden years. We obviously all know 700s, so Morgan's talking about 737-700s, what are sometimes called 73Gs, uh, do not have the range to operate a mission like that over the Pacific Ocean. Otherwise, it wouldn't have taken us so long to get our 800 ETOPS certified for Hawaii. So just very quickly, uh, ETOPS means um, it's a plane that's allowed to operate. It's extended twin engine operations. You're allowed to operate the the aircraft over water. You know, they have the life rafts and, and, and other things that they have to have to be able to fly a long distance over water. I desperately need to know how they got this plane, Morgan says, from Australia to Argentina and who flew it there. This question keeps me up at night. I truly love the show. You guys do great work. I love hearing about the big picture that I always hear exists, but I've never seen because I'm too trying to, uh, because I'm too busy trying to make sense of these reserve assignments. Keep it coming, fly safe, Morgan. Morgan, thank you so much. What a great message, uh, Ben. I I did a, a little bit of digging, or actually, what I did, I, I cheated. I asked a friend who knows, <laughs> who I thought would know this better than I would. I asked uh, Thomas Yeager over at, at CH Aviation. CH Aviation has, has a great database of, of, uh, of just where every airplane is in the world. I think Thomas has most of it in his head without even looking it up. But I asked him that. How does an airplane get from uh, from uh, Australia to, to Argentina, uh, especially and uh, he, he poked around quickly and he showed me uh, there, there was one plane that had operated with Virgin Australia uh, that somebody took a picture of it, p- painted in in Aerolineus Argentinus livery in Barcelona on its way from <laughs> from uh, from from <laughs> from Australia to Argentina. So what that tells you is that that airplane took a very long way around. Um, you know, the shortest route, and, and if you had a plane with maybe, and, and Thomas told me this, with maybe extra fuel tanks, and if it did have that ETOP certification, you might be able to get from like 
Australia, New Zealand, Tahiti, maybe to Easter Island. I looked that up. I think that's about another 2,600 miles. And then from there to South America. But he's guessing, and it makes sense by it based on what he saw, that you just couldn't do that with, with, uh, with one of these planes. So if that plane was in Barcelona... Uh, tells me it probably went from Australia to maybe Indonesia up into the Indian subcontinent. And, and then it probably couldn't even get from like Africa to South America. The closest point between Africa and South America is kind of Senegal, like Dakar, maybe to northeastern Brazil, Belém or somewhere. But that's still over 2000 miles. Um, the, the plane probably had to without, you know, without any a 700 can fly 2,000 miles, but without any airports in between, if it doesn't have ETOPS, you know, like an alternative airport for a, for an emergency landing, uh, probably if it was in Barcelona, that's because it was going to go north first and uh, who knows, go to Dublin and Reykjavik and then cross over into uh, in, into uh, Maritime Canada and come all the way down. And that's probably what it did. And ask Tom, by the way, and you you might know this, uh, Ben, too, because I'm sure you've, you've, you've dealt with some of this, but um, in terms of who would have done it, he said it could have been one airline or the other airline, so either the airline that you know where the plane was, the airline where it was going to, or he said there are ferry specialists. So, so it's called these are called ferry flights. Morgan knows this. Uh, people who work in the industry know this. Uh, you know, a flight that's not carrying passengers, where you're just moving an airplane from one place to another. It's called a ferry flight. And uh, Thomas says that there are firms that this is what they do. They 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 ferry airplanes. Well, Seth, you watched a lot of Carmen Sandiego when you were a kid, didn't you? <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> Where in the world is the 737-700? Yeah. Like, well, there's a there's a couple of things here. I mean, I think you're right that these two airplanes take a long time to get from there to there. But um, you remember uh, remember Sarah Palin, the vice presidential? Yeah, uh, she could see she could see Russia from, uh, see from Russia Alaska. From Alaska, that's right. And if you think about that. You know, you could certainly go north from Australia and fly over Russia if they didn't, if they would give you permission, right? Fly mm-hmm. to Alaska and stay over land lots of the ways, all the way to Argentina. That's a long way around, right? And I'm not saying yeah. that's what this plane did. The point is, if you look at sort of a normal size world map, you see lots of water. But if you look a lot closer, there's lots of little land dots around, right? There's a lot of runways on a lot of those dots. You mentioned Easter Island. The, the runway at Easter Island was built by the U.S. government as an emergency landing spot for the space shuttle, right? Wow, so, I didn't know that. So you can certainly land a 737 there. Right? <laughs> I would guess so. And so, um, and the other thing to think about is that we think about a plane's distance and its flying distance, typically with a full load of passengers and bags. When it's just a couple of pilots, those planes can fly, you know, several. Uh, uh, several, maybe an hour longer, or maybe it's not that long, but they can certainly fly a lot longer than when the plane is full. And that gives it more range than we typical think, typically think of those planes when they're just being ferried because they don't have, a, they don't have people on them. They just have a couple of crew members, maybe an augmented crew, meaning a third pilot, um, and, you know, enough radios to talk and some food, right? That's about <laughs> it, right? And so there's a, there's a lot of ways to fly around and there's a lot of dots on the, on the map to go around. I don't, think it's, I don't think it was that hard, actually. You know, years ago when I worked for Taka Airlines in Central America, Taka actually wet leased. Wet leasing, for those of you who don't know, means leasing an airplane to someone, but you not only give them the plane, you give them the crew and you buy the fuel. Basically, you're flying for someone else. Taka was wet leasing a couple of its A319s 
for uh, to fly the Trans-Tasman, to fly from New Zealand to Australia. And they had to get the planes over to New Zealand from Central America. And it was the same kind of thing. And the reality, when I was there, I probably could have just asked them, how'd we get the plane there? <laughs> <laughs> but it was the same, you know, similar range airplane, similar size airplane that I had yeah. to get from Central America and which certainly could get to Argentina easily, right, with a couple of stops, right? and, uh, <laughs> over over to New Zealand, which is you know a, a short hop to Australia. So, and, and, um, yeah, and so in that case, that was Taka wet leasing them out to an airline over there. So these were Taka planes that during maybe the low season in 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 Central America, you were you were flying for an airline over there, not the other way around. That's exactly right. And the, and the planes were dispatched out of El Salvador. Like they were, yeah. it was part of the TACA operation, but they were flying, you know, nobody was buying TACA airlines there. Sure. They were buying Air New Zealand or whoever it was that was buying the capacity. I don't remember. Um, yeah. But but again, it was the same kind of thing is you had to get that plane out there. For many, many years, Continental Airlines, then United Airlines flew, you know, the famous island hopper route uh, that, that stopped five places on the way to Guam from the West Coast. Yeah. <laughs> One of them you couldn't even get off unless you had uh, government certification, Johnston Island, because it was a <laughs> nuclear waste dump. Right. <laughs> um, but so this, you know, this idea of smaller planes hopping all around isn't so unusual. I'll tell you one other story. When I was younger and used to fly smaller airplanes, I remember reading a story in like in the AOPA magazine, which is the uh, Airline Owners and Pilots Association. It's for small airplane pilots, basically. Uh-huh. Um, a story about how. You know, you could recreate Charles Lindbergh's flight with a small, you know, single engine Cessna or Piper airplane uh, without too much difficulty. And it was a, an article of all the practical things of where you'd fly, how you'd fly into Canada, where you'd stop in Greenland, how to deal with magnetic variation in uh, in your navigation aids. This was before yeah. GPS, of course. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and things like that. But it was interesting. I mean, they were even so the point is they were even talking they were even sort of promoting the idea of taking a very, very small plane, a single engine plane that, you know, that normally doesn't fly more than a couple hundred miles and flying it across the Atlantic Ocean. And there are ways you can do it practically and safely. So this idea that airplanes can go all around the world is a real, is a real thing. Just because we don't see 737s fly passengers nonstop from Asia to, the, to South America doesn't mean there aren't lots of ways they can get there. Yeah, well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com. That's questions, plural, at airlinespluralconfidential.com. Or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. While beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or whine. Uh, we listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Another customer, actually, uh, another listener, I should say, emailed in, by the way, Ben. You, uh, I don't know if you caught this email, suggesting that that instead of saying that the complaint is fine, we should say if the complaint is fine, then the airline has to pay a fine, right? Because the, the customer is <laughs> so, so fine, the airline or or the customer is is just whining. Uh, good Good suggestion there, Ben. You have a complaint. Yes, Seth. This one is from Barbara of McDonough, Georgia. Barbara writes, I flew from Atlanta to Atlantic City and was told that my bag fit the exact carry-on measurements. Flying back, I was charged $57 for the same bag. 
I really need to know why, all in caps that why. There are lots of discrepancies in the charges. It's almost impossible to get someone on the telephone to answer questions. My bag fit under my seat. Okay, so this was on Spirit Airlines, which is the only airline that flies nonstop from Atlanta to uh, to Atlantic City. Uh, what do you think, Ben? Fine? Do we find Spirit? <laughs> or, or is or is uh, is Barbara just whining? Well, to be clear, I'm going to say I side with Barbara on this one, which means find the airline. And that's not to say that if her bag really didn't fit, she shouldn't have been charged both ways. Sure. She either should have been charged both ways or not charged either way. This is a problem that many airlines have about just consistency of policy application. You have people in you know different airports. They're all trained kind of the same way, but they see different things at different times. And so you had... You know, this an agent at one airport who said, this fits, go ahead and take it on. And an agent at another airport says, it doesn't fit, you got to pay for it. The sizers don't change. What happens is it was different agents who interpreted a policy differently, but the policy is what it is. So she should have either had to pay for both or not paid for either. What she shouldn't have done is have to pay the second time when the first time it was free. Now think about if it happened the other way. If she had been charged the first way and then on the way back they said this is free, you think she would have asked for a refund for the way back or would she say, oh, I got away with this one? It's kind of interesting to think what she might have thought. But given the order in which that she got it free on the way down and charged on the way back, that says to me that's an airline problem and it's an inconsistency of applying the policy right. I'm not saying her bag wasn't big. What shouldn't have been charged? Maybe it should have, but then it should have been charged both ways, not just one way. Yeah, and and I think we've all encountered this, right? You know, airlines. Look, when it comes to weight, let's say with bags, this is one I think everybody's dealt with, right? Your bag is, you know, fifty-two pounds or forty-two pounds on Spirit Airlines that that you know that uh, that that that's the limit, or outside the U.S. it might be. 22 kilograms, you know, whatever the limit is, it's just over. There are agents who will just say, okay, fine, who cares? Uh, and, and and there are those that for a similar weight will charge you. And it's one of these things where it's almost like, you know, no good deed goes unpunished for the for the, the, the agents who, if, if nobody ever let you go, right? It feels very flexible when they say, oh, 51, 52 pounds, yeah, don't worry. I mean, that feels, <laughs> that feels reasonable. But then the problem is that that other agent who charges you for the same weight you know, they seem like a jerk, even though they, they, the reason they seem like a jerk is because somebody else, you know, used used some some judgment there. I remember I'll give you I'll give you another, not exactly an airline thing before we go. But I um, was going through security. This was back before pre-check, certainly before I had pre-check. I don't think there was pre-check yet. Uh, when I lived in South Florida still, I was traveling. Uh, I used to travel very frequently. Um, one week I flew from Fort Lauderdale. And I put all my stuff in the bin. So this is post 9-11 already. You have to take out your, you know, and then post the liquids thing. You know, so you take it all out, your laptop, your liquids, all that. Um, put it all in a bin and it fit. It all fit like perfectly, right? There was my laptop next to it was my shoes, which I had to take off. And, you know, there were my liquids. And it was, it, it was just like all, it all fit exactly in one bin, right? And it was this, it was such a beautiful job of putting this in a bin that the security uh, TSA agent kind of angled the bin up. And, and said to people behind me, see, this is how it's done. This is how you <laughs> this is how you put things in a bin, right? The very next week, I flew from Miami, and I did the same thing. I had all the same stuff. And this time, the agent, 
yelled at me for not putting the laptop separately in its own bin, which you, technically I think you're supposed to do. <laughs> but 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 I got a gold star. The week I like called out, you know, it was an example of, of of what was right in the world the week prior by the TSA agents in Fort Lauderdale. And then I was uh, you know, was shamed for doing the same thing in Miami. And 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 travel is just is just full of that. All kinds of inconsistencies. A lot of human beings involved in uh in 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 all of these that's absolutely right yeah hey seth before we go into the final there's one more thing i want to say i want to go back to morgan for a minute what an amazing thing she's done in terms of putting that spreadsheet together and i don't know if we can do this and my guess is that southwest wouldn't want her to but if she would want to send us that spreadsheet i think it'd be great to post it on the (laughs) airlinescapital.com website i bet it's absolutely fascinating absolutely how cool (laughs) the industry is just full of people like that people who at every level in the industry just have this love for what they do there are there are people at ticket counters and 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 uh uh, you know, and fixing planes and flying planes and, and working in offices uh, who, who just who just love all of this in a way that I don't know if people in every industry like, you know, there certainly are other other businesses where, where people are fascinated with what they do. But I, I just I just love love stuff like that. If you're going to do something, you know, yeah, pour your heart into it and, and, <laughs> and love what you do. That's right. Well, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week, please. Fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. Or you can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And send us your questions and your spreadsheets. And I'm Ben Baumhead. <laughs> talk to you soon. Take care. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.